Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got another excellent episode for you guys today. Um, First and foremost, we originally covered the case of Pamela Smart in episode 160 in January of 2022. So if you want to hear more details about this case, go back to episode 160. But evidently, Pamela Smart, convicted of plotting with teen lover to kill husband, has New Hampshire court petition denied. Danielle Wallace wrote this article, but Pamela Smart, a former high school employee convicted of plotting with her teen lover to kill her husband in 1990, has attempted to have her life sentence reduced. This was denied again, this time by the New Hampshire's highest court. It's one of the first sensational trials covered in the news involving an affair with a student. It inspired books and the Nicole Kidman and Joaquin Phoenix movie to die for. Smart, who was 22 at the time and working as a high school media coordinator, was accused of conspiring with her 15-year-old lover, William Flynn, who later shot and killed her husband, Gregory Smart. Though she admitted to seducing the teen, Smart denied knowledge of the murder plot carried out by Flynn and three other teenagers. She was convicted anyhow of conspiracy to commit murder and other crimes and sentenced to life without parole. Flynn, convicted of shooting Gregory Smart in the head at the married couple's dairy condominium while friends held a knife to the man's neck, cooperated with prosecutors, served shorter sentences, and has been released, as have the other teens. Having exhausted her judicial appeal options, Smart, who is now 55, asked a state council for a sentence reduction hearing last year. Five-member executive council, which approved state contracts and appointees to the courts and state agencies, rejected her request in less than three minutes, prompting the appeal to the state Supreme Court. But the state's highest court dismissed the petition for lack of jurisdiction on Wednesday, saying that ordering the council to reconsider what it had deemed a political question would violate the separation of powers. Because imposing procedural rules or standards upon the executive branch in the commutation process would violate the separation of powers doctrine, we dismiss the Rule 11 petition for lack of jurisdiction, Justice Patrick E. Donovan wrote in the opinion Wednesday, according to WMUR. New Hampshire Supreme Court Chief Justice Jordan McDonald recused himself. This ruling by the New Hampshire Supreme Court is a continuing disappointment that devastates our hopes for Pamela Smart finally receiving reasonable due process in the state of New Hampshire. Smart's spokeswoman, Elnora Pam, said in an email to the Associated Press. Smart's longtime attorney, Mark Sisti, argued the council simply did not make Smart's case a priority and instead brushed aside her chance at freedom. During a hearing before the state Supreme Court last month, Sisti said the elected council did not spend any time poring over Smart's voluminous petition, which included many letters of support from inmates, supervisors, and others, and even discuss it before rejecting her request. The lawyer argued that Smart had a constitutional right to demonstrate her fitness to return to society before the governor and executive council. Governor Chris Sunamnu, who brings forth matters for the council to consider, had the option of putting the commutation request on the agenda and did so, Laura Lombardi, senior assistant attorney general, argued, according to the AP. She said there was no requirement for the governor and council to create rules regarding the process. Smart has since earned two master's degrees behind bars, two fellow inmates, been ordained as a minister, and is part of an inmate liaison committee. 
Last month, several of Smart's supporters, including former fellow inmates, wore pink t-shirts with the words enough is enough, traveling to New Hampshire to hear the court discuss the case. In her opinion, she said she was remorseful, has been rehabilitated, and apologized to Gregory Smart's family. Though relatives say she has failed to take full responsibility. And she is pretty much getting towards the end of having no possible chance for appeals in this case. We will keep you posted as it continues to unfold. Next case that I want to talk about, Stanford students violated free speech by shouting down a conservative speaker. Paula Sakuma wrote this article. There's no First Amendment right to use speech to shout down a speaker and keep them from being heard. This principle has again become important in connection with an incident at Stanford Law School on March 9th. The Federalist Society, a conservative organization, invited Judge Kyle Duncan, a very conservative judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals to the Fifth Circuit, to speak. Students posted flyers around the school objecting to Duncan's views. The judge who walked into the event while recording on his cell phone clearly expected protesters. Initially, students shouted pointed questions at him and booed his responses. Duncan asked for an administrator to restore order. Tyrion Steinbach, the associate dean for equity and inclusion at the law school, came forward and spoke for several minutes. It's uncomfortable to say that for so many people here, your work has caused harm, Steinbeck said. She spoke of the importance of free speech, but then said, again, I will ask, is the juice worth the squeeze? Is it worth the pain this causes? The division this causes? Do you have something so incredibly important to say about Twitter and guns and COVID that it is worth this impact on the division of these people? Steinbeck ultimately said the audience should let Duncan speak, but Duncan reacted angrily and said to a member of the audience, you're an appalling idiot. You're an appalling idiot. In this school, the inmates have gotten control of the asylum, he declared. Two days later, Stanford President Mark Tessier Levine and law school dean Jenny Martinez apologized to Duncan for the disruption to his speech, calling the incident inconsistent with Stanford's policies on free speech. A national media firestorm erupted over this event, and on March 22nd, Martinez issued a lengthy letter condemning the disruption, making it clear there is no free speech right to shout down and silence others. She said that Steinbeck is on leave, and while no students would be disciplined, the law school would require all students to attend a half-day training program on freedom of speech. This is not the first time in recent years that law students have behaved this way. A year ago, students at both UC Law San Francisco, previously Hastings College of Law, and at Yale Law School disrupted invited conservative speakers. In all of these instances, protesters defended their actions by claiming they had the right to use their speech to deplatform a speaker and keep them from being heard. This is a wrong as a matter of law and at odds with common sense. There is no reason why the protester's speech should be given priority over that of an invited speaker and an audience desiring to listen. Cases have consistently rejected such a right to a heckler's veto. Indeed, if it were allowed, the only permissible speech would be that where no one cares enough to protest. Each fall, in my role as dean, I send a message to the Berkeley Law School community about this. This year, my message stated, our goal is to be a place where all ideas and views can be expressed. The First Amendment does not allow us to exclude any viewpoints, and I believe this is crucial, that all universities should be places where all ideas can be voiced and discussed. At times, this may mean there can be an expression of views that we dislike or even find offensive. Disruption of speakers and events will not be tolerated, I wrote. The appropriate response to an objectionable speaker is to invite your own speaker or engage in a non-disruptive protest. 
I know some disagree and claim a right to shout down speakers, but the only way my speech can be free is to support protection for speech that I dislike today. I am also hopeful that there's a benefit in hearing views different from our own, that it can be unsettling and even painful. Wow, that's some interesting stuff. And I do find that I agree with that viewpoint that we should not be able to shout down and force speakers off platforms because we disagree with their views. If you disagree, don't listen, walk away, go somewhere else. But I do believe they have a right to speak. So it's an interesting case. And another update on the Ghislaine Maxwell case. Evidently, she says that a 15-year-old Florida plea deal should undo her sex trafficking conviction. And Jacob Shamsian wrote this article. Ghislaine Maxwell has appealed the conviction and her 20-year prison sentence she received for trafficking girls for Jeffrey Epstein for sex. Her lawyers are arguing that a 15-year-old agreement between Epstein and Florida's prosecutors should have protected her. In the 113-page appeal filed a few weeks ago, Maxwell's lawyers also repeated events that came up in her trial. She argues that she was a proxy for Epstein, the notorious and well-connected pedophile who died in jail in 2019 while awaiting trial for his own set of sex trafficking charges. It's a zeal to pin the blame for its own incompetence and for Epstein's crimes on Maxwell. The government breached its promise not to prosecute Maxwell, charged her with time-barred offenses, and resurrected and recast decades-old allegations for conduct previously ascribed to Epstein and other named assistants, the lawyers wrote in the filing. Jurors in Manhattan Federal Court convicted Maxwell on five sex trafficking charges in December 2021. Prosecutors alleged she groomed girls to have sex with Epstein and sexually abused them herself. U.S. District Judge Allison Nathan, who oversaw her trial, sentenced her to 20 years in prison, plus additional probation time and fines. She's currently serving her sentence in a low-security prison in Tallahassee, Florida. A rogue juror nearly derailed Maxwell's guilty verdict. Her conviction was thrown into doubt after one of the jurors gave media interviews disclosing that he was personally a victim of sexual abuse as a child. The juror identified as Juror 50 in court documents, and Scotty David, his first and middle name in interviews, failed to disclose his experience in juror forms and wasn't asked about it during the judge's voir dire interview ahead of the trial. Maxwell's lawyers asked Nathan to vacate her conviction and grant a new trial. She held a highly unusual hearing where she questioned the juror who said he flew through the questionnaire because he was bored during the selection process, and he said he no longer considered himself a victim. Nathan ultimately allowed the verdict to stand, ruling the juror didn't deliberately lie and he would not have been stricken for cause, even if he had answered each question on the questionnaire accurately. The episode with Juror 50 featured prominently in Maxwell's appeal. Her attorney complained that Nathan didn't give the opportunity to cross-examine the juror, did not allow questions about whether his experience was similar to Maxwell's accusers, and claimed he gave a patently absurd explanation for his failure to give truthful answers to multiple questions on the juror questionnaire. Maxwell's lawyers also argued that prosecutors filed the charges against her too late according to the relevant criminal statutes that Nathan failed to fix a perceived misunderstanding the jury had on one of the charges and that the judge gave her too high a sentence based upon her crimes. Maxwell's lawyer spent the bulk of the appeal arguing that Maxwell should have been barred from prosecution based on a 2007 agreement between Epstein and federal prosecutors in Florida. The non-prosecution agreement negotiated by Epstein's high-powered attorneys came after law enforcement concluded that he had sexually coerced and abused dozens of young women 
Instead of bringing federal sex trafficking charges, the then U.S. attorney, Alexander Acosta, allowed Epstein to serve a brief and lenient sentence in Palm Beach County Jail on prostitution solicitation charges. The document also said the U.S. would not bring criminal charges against four specific women known as potential co-conspirators. Nathan previously ruled the agreement's language bound only the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Florida, which Acosta led, and not the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, which prosecuted Maxwell. Courts cannot infer intent to depart from this ordinary practice from an agreement's use of phrases like the government or the United States. These are common shorthand. A plea agreement need not painstakingly spell out the Office of the United States Attorney for such and such district in every instance make clear that it applies only in the district where signed. The Justice Department's Office of Professional Responsibility, which investigated Acosta's conduct and admonished him for the agreement, dug up volumes of emails and other communication regarding the agreement, but nowhere in all of that negotiation history could Maxwell's lawyers find any evidence that Epstein's co-conspirators would have unlimited protection across the country. In the last appeal, Maxwell's lawyers argued that Nathan read the agreement too narrowly. Epstein wanted a broad agreement, they said. Her lawyers pointed to Leslie Groff, one of the people explicitly named as a potential co-conspirator who worked for Epstein out of his office in New York. U.S. attorneys in Manhattan decided not to seek charges against Groff, insider previously reported. Epstein's objective in negotiating the MPA was to obtain a global resolution that would, among other things, provide maximum protection for any alleged co-conspirators. In any case, the judge should have held a hearing to figure out the non-prosecution agreement's true meaning before concluding it did not apply to Maxwell, the lawyers argued. I don't know if that's a strong argument in this case. I think the stronger point for appeal is the juror misconduct or the potential um, juror issue with juror number 50. But in any case, we'll keep you guys posted as this one continues to unfold as well. Next article I want to talk about is Colorado dentist killed his wife by poisoning her protein shakes in order to start a new life with his mistress. Joshua Zitzter wrote this article, and typically we don't hear about men poisoning because poisoning tends to be more of a woman's murder method. But a Colorado dentist is accused of killing his wife by poisoning her protein shakes so they could start a new life with his mistress, according to the arrest warrant obtained by the Daily Beast. James Tolliver Craig, 45, was arrested this last week in Aurora, Colorado, on charges of first-degree murder. According to the affidavit, Craig planned to end his wife's life by searching for ways to kill someone undetected, providing her poisons that align with her hospital symptoms and working on starting a new life with his lover. Police described the death of Angela Craig, his wife, in a news release as a heinous, complex, and calculated murder. Craig drove his wife to a hospital on Wednesday evening after she complained of a headache and severe dizziness. Soon after, she experienced a seizure and underwent a rapid medical decline before being placed on life support. She was later declared brain dead and was taken off life support. An investigation was launched by Aurora Police Department's major crimes unit after Craig's business partner spoke to a nurse about his concerns that Angela Craig had been poisoned. According to the affidavit, his suspicions were raised after word got to him from an office manager that two days before Angela Craig's hospitalization, she had opened a package for Craig. Inside was a canister that had a biohazard sticker and a potassium cyanide label on it. 
James was known to make Angela protein shakes regularly, the affidavit said. It is believed he had provided Angela with the poison through these shakes. Craig allegedly ordered multiple poisons, and investigators said in an affidavit that he had also searched online for how to buy oleander, a poisonous plant, how much pure arsenic could kill a human, and an article titled Six Deadly Undetectable Poisons and How to Detect Them. Angela Craig had been hospitalized at least twice before Wednesday, per the Daily Beast, with investigators citing a string of emails to allege that Craig made travel plans for his mistress to visit him, which lined up almost exactly with Angela Craig's hospitalizations. The emails were intimate and sexually explicit and sent from the same email address Craig allegedly used to purchase the poisons. Craig made his first appearance in court on Monday and remains in custody without bond. According to the local TV news outlet KUSA, he isn't allowed contact with any of his six children. Wow. It is hard to believe that anybody thinks they can get away with something like that nowadays. Either that or he was just so narcissistic that he thought he was smarter than anyone else. But the fact that he ordered the poison with his real email address and then sent all these nasty emails out to his mistress and didn't think he was going to get caught is just baffling to me. But in any case, that was an interesting one I wanted to share. And an update on a case we covered a few weeks back about a 29-year-old woman that poses a teen to attend a high school. And this one is 29-year-old scientist who posed as a teen to attend high school sought a place of safety, says her lawyer. Ines Shin wrote this article, but a 29-year-old woman charged with presenting a false birth certificate in January to pose as a high school student has pleaded not guilty to the charges. During her second court appearance, Heijiang Shin pleaded not guilty to charges that carry a maximum penalty of five years of imprisonment. In January, the Rutgers University graduate enrolled at New Brunswick High School in New Jersey by posing as a 15-year-old. She attended for four days before she was arrested for providing false documents. Gelber explained that Shin had moved to the U.S. from South Korea at the age of 16 to attend a private boarding school. Following a recent divorce, she felt lonely and longed to replicate her childhood experience. At no time was anyone or any student in danger, and this entire case is more about my client wanting to return to a place of safety and welcoming in an environment that she looks back on fondly, her attorney said. He also argued that she had no intentions of causing harm to students, faculty, or staff. However, students expressed their concerns about the situation to local news outlets after they were not permitted to speak at the Board of Education meeting related to this. Tatiana, a student at the school who initially wanted to help Shin feel comfortable at the new school, reported receiving a text from her the night before she was arrested that made her feel frightened for her safety. As soon as I saw the message, I blocked the number and couldn't sleep for the next two hours, she said. I'm scared she could be lurking around the corner and easily take me from my house. If she has the ability to falsify documents, enter a public high school, have close contact with young students, she has the ability to do anything. The New Brunswick police released a statement earlier saying that their investigation has not uncovered any evidence of ill intent behind Shin's enrollment in the school. Following resolution of her case, she plans to return to South Korea. Her next court appearance is scheduled for May. We will keep you guys posted on that one. That is interesting indeed as we continue to uncover facts about that case. I remember talking to Nurse Sam about that one and we were speculating as to why she would want to go back to that. And I guess now we have the background on that. 
Next article, mocking the police got an Ohio man arrested and the Supreme Court ignored the onion's plea to define the limits of parody. Jane Kirtley wrote this article. Can Americans be jailed for making fun of the government? Most would respond with a resounding no, of course not. The First Amendment protects us from that. But Anthony Novak learned otherwise in March 2016 after he created a fake version of the Parma, Ohio Police Department's Facebook page. He copied the department's name and profile picture on his satirical Facebook page, but unlike the official page, Novak's was designated a community page and displayed the slogan, We Know Crime, a parody of the department's actual slogan, We Know Crime. So he was We Know and O, and the official department slogan was No K-N-O. During its short life, the page was available only for about 12 hours. Novak posted six posts, which were all parodies, one echoing Jonathan Swift's classic satire, a modest proposal that suggested Ireland's poor sell their children as food to the rich, announced a new law forbidding residents to give any homeless person food, money, or shelter in our city for 90 days, so the homeless population will eventually leave our city due to starvation. Parma police promptly posted a notice on its official page warning residents not to be fooled by Novak's parody. Novak, in return, posted the same notice on his own page, but also deleted the few posted reader comments opining that his page was fake. After police announced a criminal investigation, Novak took his page down entirely. He asked the U.S. Supreme Court to rule on the resulting court case stemming from the police's heavy-handed treatment of him. In late February 2023, the High Court refused to take the case, though, forfeiting an opportunity to make a definitive statement on how far free speech protections extend when it comes to satire government. Here's how the case first developed. Citing a state law making it a crime to use a computer to disrupt police operations, the police searched Novak's apartment, seized his phone and laptop, and jailed him for four days. A jury acquitted him of the felony charges in August of 2016. He then filed a lawsuit against the police, arguing that they had violated his First Amendment rights. The law enforcement officials replied that they were entitled to qualified immunity, a legal doctrine protecting government employees from liability for conduct that has been clearly established as unconstitutional. A three-judge panel for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit has jurisdiction over cases from Ohio, Kentucky, Michigan, and Tennessee, ruled that although parody is protected speech, copying the department's official warning and deleting comments questioning the page's authenticity might not be. It concluded that the officers could have reasonably believed that some of Novak's Facebook activity violated the criminal statute and was not protected by the First Amendment. Novak asked the Supreme Court to review his case in September 2022. He argued the police should not be allowed to arrest an individual solely for making fun of the government, yet that is exactly what happened here. If that is not an obvious violation of the Constitution, it's hard to imagine what would be. Novak also invited the High Court to reconsider the Qualified Immunity Doctrine, especially in cases where protected speech is the basis for arresting someone. The police response solemnly predicted that a ruling in Novak's favor could lead to a virtual law enforcement Armageddon, confusing the public, eroding their trust in public social media sites, posing a threat to safety, and exacerbating the nationwide crisis police agencies are experiencing. Novak's petition was supported by amicus curiae briefs by politically diverse friends of the court, including the satirical news sites The Onion and The Babylon Bee, who argued that their own survival depends on First Amendment protection for parody. 
Acknowledging that its own writing has occasionally confused some readers, The Onion pointed out that satire only works if its credibility mimics whatever it's parroting. The quotes they wrote would not assume that ordinary readers are less sophisticated and more humorless than they actually are. The Onion concluded by declaring it intends to continue its socially valuable role, bringing the disinfectant of sunlight into the halls of power, and it would vastly prefer that sunlight not be measured out to its readers in 15-minute increments in an exercise yard. In February 2023, the Supreme Court chose not to hear the case. Coincidentally, the order was issued three days before the 35th anniversary of the release of the Supreme Court's opinion in Hustler Magazine v. Falwell. The major ruling established that the legal tradition protecting robust criticism of public figures and government operations must extend to satirical cartoons and parody, however caustic they may be. From the 19th century characterist and editorial cartoonist Thomas Nast to the creators of the animated South Park TV show and movie, satirists do their best work when they are free to skewer public officials and celebrities without fear of legal consequences. And as then Chief Justice William Rehnquist, the author of The Hustler Opinion and himself a one-time editorial cartoonist, wrote for the unanimous court, from the viewpoint of history, it is clear that our political discourse would have been considerably poorer without them. The Husser case, however, was a civil action for emotional distress filed by the Reverend Jerry Falwell after the magazine published an ad parody making fun of the nationally known fundamentalist minister. By contrast, Novak was arrested, detained, and criminally prosecuted for lampooning the police who were seeking to deprive him of his liberty and presumably serving as a warning to others. Using criminal statutes to silence satirists and parodyists occurs in countries like Russia, Iran, and Thailand, where officials tolerate no disrespect. I believe that it is distinctly un-American. Yet as recently as 2010, Justice Neil Gorsh, then a judge for the Tenth Circuit of the U.S. Court of Appeals, wrote that the Supreme Court has yet to address how far the First Amendment goes in protecting parity. This was in a case challenging a prosecutor's claim of qualified immunity after she approved the search, seizure, and arrest of a parodyist for allegedly violating the Colorado criminal libel statute. Refusing to review Novak's case is a missed opportunity for the court to consider and decide once and for all whether the First Amendment protects satire and parody. And that is no joke. And then we have one final article for the day, and this one is a cautionary tale. A hacker ripped me off for $10,000. The scam turned out to be brilliant and terrifying. Avery Hartman's wrote this one. Verizon chased the police. They were all useless when my identity got hacked. Then Psycho Bunny came to the rescue. It was a Friday in July when I first noticed something seemed off. I was spending some time with my family on a gorgeous summer day, swimming and drinking beer and ignoring my phone as much as possible. When I finally checked my notifications, I had two alerts from Verizon. Both contained authorization codes, the kind of security measure they take when you make changes to your account. There was also a receipt from Verizon for $0 and a message thanking me for activating my new device. I immediately checked my Verizon account, but nothing seemed to miss. The receipt seemed like a glitch, as if Verizon had belatedly billed me for the phone which I'd activated four months prior. In hindsight, I should have been more suspicious, and I should have called Verizon right away. But why would I want to spend the day in customer service hell when I could spend it on a boat? The next morning, though, something else seemed strange. When I went to send a text, I realized I didn't have service. I tried flipping cell service on and off, restarting my phone, and nothing. I couldn't text and I couldn't make calls. 
I asked my fiance to check for a local Verizon outage, but nothing turned up. I wondered whether maybe I was just in a dead zone, but I'd never had this problem before. And then I started to feel a slowly dawning sense of dread. A few days earlier, my colleague Rob Price had published a terrifying story about hackers who waged a campaign of harassment and intimidation to steal Instagram handles and other coveted usernames on social media. Tucked into that story was a phrase I hadn't heard before, a type of hack I had to look up. It was called SIM swapping. That's S-I-M. In a SIM swap, the hacker doesn't need to physically steal your SIM card, the thing in your phone that identifies it as your phone. They just pretend to be you and persuade an employee at your local telecom provider to activate a new SIM card for them using your phone number. Once that happens, your phone immediately loses service and the hacker can now use your number to wreak havoc in your life. They send messages to others pretending to be you, intercept texts from your bank, and even reset your passwords to lock you out of your accounts. Sim swapping hasn't been around long. It started in about 2018 as a way for gamers to steal other people's cryptocurrency, which is pretty easy to do once you have full access to someone's phone. But now experts say the crime has become more pervasive and more organized. In 2021, the FBI reports SIM swaps robbed victims of more than $68 million. You could think of these people as petty thieves, says Allison Nixon, the chief research officer at Unit 221B, a cybersecurity firm. But after 2018, these are petty thieves that became millionaires. I borrowed a phone and called Verizon, which confirmed I'd been SIM swapped. While I was vacationing in western New York, more than four hours away, the hacker had showed up at a Verizon store in Columbus, Ohio, pretending they were me, complete with a fake ID. They told the store employee their phone had been destroyed and asked to use my phone number to activate an older iPhone they brought in with them. I remembered the strange $0 receipt I'd gotten the day before and checked the store address at the bottom. Sure enough, it was from a Verizon store in the Columbus area. I was floored by how easily someone could steal my phone and sure that it must have been a major screw-up on the part of the store employee. But when I spoke with the higher-ups at Verizon, they explained that actually their device activation process had worked precisely the way it was supposed to. When a two-factor authentication isn't possible, like when a phone has been lost, stolen, or destroyed, an ID card will suffice. All the hacker needed was knowledge of the glaring loophole in Verizon security, a phony piece of plastic, and a little chuchpa. Verizon immediately deactivated the phone that belonged to the hacker and reinstated mine, but the employee I talked to warned me this was probably just the beginning of the scam and it turned out he was right. Once the hacker had control of my phone number, they didn't waste time. They left the Verizon store and went to a nearby Apple store where they used my Chase card to spend $6,370. They then drove to a mall across town to a shop at Gucci where they made two separate transactions totaling $2,956. They finished at a clothing store called Psycho Bunny where they spent $452. All told, they racked up nearly $10,000 in purchases in just a few hours. The next morning, perhaps testing their luck, they tried to make another purchase at Best Buy, but this was after I'd spoken with Verizon and locked my card. So they just opened a Best Buy credit card in my name instead. Still, something about all the transactions kept bugging me. I noticed the hacker never logged into my Chase account or my social media accounts. They just racked up charges on my credit card. I couldn't figure out why they needed my phone number in the first place. But then I scoured my text logs and I realized what they were up to. Chase, aware that I didn't typically spend $10,000 in a single afternoon, sent out fraud alerts each time the hacker tried to make a purchase. 
I could see in my text logs that each time a fraud alert came in, the hacker used my phone to respond, allowing the charges to go through. That mystery was fairly easily solved, but there was something else I couldn't figure out. How did the hacker make so many purchases on my card in the first place? I could see in my account that the charges had occurred at a physical store and not online. The hacker never logged into my iCloud account to set up Apple Pay, and my credit card had been safely tucked into my wallet the entire time. I decided to call each of the stores where the hacker went shopping to try to figure out what happened. I tried Gucci first, and a representative at the centralized Gucci switchboard informed me that Gucci doesn't have any telephone numbers or its individual retail locations, and the only way to learn more about the purchase was to visit the store. Given that I was back home in New York City, more than 14 hours away, I decided to try my luck at Apple. Apple was equally unhelpful, and a store employee politely informed me that unless I knew exactly which items had been purchased, there was no way he could look up information about the transaction, even though I knew the total amount spent, the card number, the date, and time of the purchases. The employee said there was another option. He'd be able to hand over the full receipt, no problem, as long as the police requested it from Apple's legal department. I decided to give it one last shot with Cycle Bunny, a menswear retailer whose logo is a rabbit school and crossbones. A helpful store manager looked at the store system and confirmed that yes, someone who said their name was Avery H. had made a purchase of $452 using my card number. The shopper had even supplied a phone number that was one digit off mine, the manager said. That was the extent of the information she had. Disheartened, I hung up. I wasn't any closer to finding out how the thief had gotten hold of my card. Then about 15 minutes later, my phone rang and it was the store manager calling back. She and her team had decided to go through the security footage for the day the purchase was made and they found footage of the thief standing at the store counter. She asked me to describe what I looked like. Yeah, the manager said, the person I'm looking at here is basically the exact opposite of you. The thief was a woman, but she was wearing a hat and a face mask when she made the purchase. I asked the store manager whether she was able to see how the thief paid for the items. They used a physical credit card, she told me. The manager seemed game to hand over the footage of the thief in action, so I called the Columbus Police Department, excited to present this new evidence. I had already filed a police report, one of 23 steps I had taken, including submitting a claim to the FBI's Internet Crime Center and freezing my credit to lock down my life and tie up the frayed ends of my identity. But when I spoke with an officer at the Columbus Fraud Squad, they asked me whether any money had been stolen from my bank account or whether my credit card company was holding me liable for the $10,000. No, I told them. Chase had agreed to reverse all the charges. The officer was quiet for a minute. Yeah, he said, we're not going to investigate that. The squad, which only has five officers, gets 7,000 reports of fraud a year. If I hadn't lost any money, the officer told me it wasn't worth their time. As it turned out, I had spoken too soon. A few weeks later, I got a letter from the Chase Fraud Department. We changed our minds, it said. We don't believe you that these charges were fraudulent and we're holding you responsible for paying them. Suddenly, I was saddled with $9,778.24 on my credit card. Three weeks shy of my wedding, my card was nearly maxed out and beginning to collect interest. I pleaded with Chase to reverse its reversal, and they told me they thought I was lying for two reasons. One, because they sent me fraud alerts when the purchases were made and I had approved them, but it was the thief, not me, I protested. And two, because a physical credit card had been used to make the purchases, even though I was still in possession of my card. When I pointed out that the thief could be seen in the Psycho Bunny security footage tapping a physical card on the payment kiosk, the Chase representative said it would have been impossible for anyone to duplicate the microchip embedded in my card. The only way Chase would agree to remove the charges is if I could provide them with documentation that I'd been SIM swapped, either an official police report or a letter from Verizon confirming that my phone number had been hijacked. 
The police had already told me it would take weeks for my report to work its way through the system. So in what was my third call to Verizon, I begged the company to provide me with documentation of the fraud, which it had already acknowledged took place. But after I spent an hour and a half on the phone being bounced around to five different departments, a Verizon representative told me they couldn't provide me with anything in writing that confirmed I'd been sim swapped. At that point, she said it was a legal issue. Then out of the blue, I got another lucky break. After Chase told me I'd been held responsible for the charges, I begged them to reopen my fraud case and check again. I sent them a folder with every shred of evidence I had. It was a screenshot of the receipt when the hacker activated my phone in Columbus, hundreds of miles from where I was at the time. There was documentation that I had submitted reports to the police, the FBI, the Federal Trade Commission, and the Federal Communications Commission. And there was a paper trial proving I'd been forced to lock my credit file with the major credit reporting agencies. My begging must have worked because Chase assigned a new investigator to look into my case, and a few days after I was turned away by Verizon, he gave me a call. For starters, after the hacker tried to make their first purchase on my card and Chase issued a fraud alert, the hacker had called Chase from my phone number. They said they were me and asked Chase to allow the purchase. You know how when you call customer service, it often says the call may be monitored and recorded? Well, they're not lying. Chase had a recording of the call. The fraud investigator had listened to the recording and had called me to check whether it was the same voice. While he wouldn't give much detail, he said it clearly wasn't me who had approved the purchase. But there was another thing that struck him as strange. Typically, when your credit card is about to expire, as mine was, the bank sends you a new card a few weeks ahead of time. The Chase investigator told me that when people get the new card, they follow a pretty standard pattern of behavior where they immediately stop using their old card and switch to the new one. But I hadn't done that. I was still using my old card. At this point in our conversation, I could almost hear my heart start beating louder. Here's the thing, I told him I never received a card with the new expiration date. The investigator explained the purchases in Columbus were made using the card with the new expiration date. Meanwhile, on the same day, I had used my old card to buy dinner in Western New York. The mystery of the credit card was solved. The hacker had gotten their hands on my new card, which is why all the purchases looked legit. Between the evidence on the card theft and the voice recording of the hacker, it was enough to convince Chase to change its mind and permanently reverse the charges. But now a new mystery emerged. How did the hacker get my new card in the first place? The Chase investigator scratched his head at that. I live in New York City, so how could the hacker have gotten into my mailbox before hightailing it all the way to Ohio to buy men's t-shirts at Psycho Bunny? Unless, that is, they hadn't stole the card from my mailbox at all. Chase, it turns out, is the largest credit card issuer in the United States, and it happens to have huge operations smack dab in the middle of Ohio. In 2016, Bloomberg reported that Chase manufactured 60% of its cards in the area. New cards issued by the bank arrived bearing a P.O. box in the town of Westerville, a 22-minute drive from downtown Columbus. I figured this couldn't be mere coincidence. Perhaps the person who hacked my phone had some sort of access to Chase's operations center and had gotten their hands on my credit card at its birthplace. But when I asked Chase about it, they assured me the company has strict security protocols in place that make it virtually impossible for cards to be stolen between the time they're produced and when they enter the postal service. In fact, Chase was able to tell me exactly when my card left its operations center on July 13th and when it was last scanned at a postal facility July 16th. It's highly unlikely, Chase said, that my card was stolen out of the mail. Suzanne Lynch, the director of the financial crime program at Utica University, told me that taking cards out of the mail has actually become more common since 2015, when most credit card companies began embedding their plastic with microchips. In the face of the new technology, Lynch said, these simply altered their strategy and went old school, stealing cards rather than counterfeiting them. 
there was one last twist to the mystery. Sue Brennan, a spokesperson for the Postal Service, explained that my credit card was scanned at the processing center nearest my local post office, which means that thieves stole it in New York City on July 16th and took it all the way back to Ohio in time for its big day of spending at the mall on July 22nd. Two months after my hack on September 29th, federal prosecutors in New York announced they had busted up a scheme that sounded familiar. Three postal workers were charged with stealing credit cards out of the mail and passing them on to five shoppers who used them to buy luxury clothes and bags at stores like Chanel and Hermes where they could resell them online. All told, the gang allegedly stole hundreds of identities and defrauded retailers and credit card companies of $1.3 million. The postal workers who went by aliases like Lady Fab and Junzy J were arrested. The group's ringleader, Ace, and the shoppers, including Peso, Dev, and Connie Cash, remained at large. Whoever hacked my identity, it makes sense that they started with my credit card. That explains why they decided to SIM swap my phone in the first place so they could intercept the fraud alerts and use my card with impunity. And because they stole my card out of the mail, they had my address, which made it easy to gin up a fake ID to show Verizon. Once they were in control of my phone number, it was erasing its time to swing by the Apple Store and Gucci and Psycho Bunny before I discovered the hack and blocked their access to my accounts. It's also clear that my identity theft was made possible in no small part by the very companies and officials who were supposed to prevent it. Verizon accepted a fake ID and then refused to assist me by confirming the attack had taken place. Chase tried to charge me $10,000 in purchases I never made. The police were too overwhelmed to investigate. Gucci couldn't even be bothered to provide me with the phone number for one of its stores. The hacker might have committed the crime, but corporate America was an accessory after the fact. But who was the hacker? That's one of the hardest things about my identity theft, both as a journalist and as a victim. There's simply no way to know who did it, let alone hold them accountable. If it weren't for dedicated employees at Chase and Psycho Bunny who took the time and effort to investigate, I'd still be in the dark about what happened and how the hacker pulled it off. She stole my identity, yet I'll never know a thing about hers. This kind of feeling is apparently pretty common among victims of identity theft and pointless. Eva Vasquez, the president and CEO of the Identity Theft Rescue Resource Center, a nonprofit organization that assists victims of identity crimes, told me that most people never learn where or how their data was compromised. In many cases, the fraud rings are based overseas. It's much better for you to focus on your recovery than on the pound of flesh. It's a normal human feeling, but it's not going to be productive in this circumstance. What's most important, she said, is that I keep my guard up. A survey conducted by the Resource Center found that half of all victims of identity theft wound up being victimized again. That's because most identity verification procedures rely on what Vasquez calls static data, like social security numbers, that remain constant throughout our lives. This means that no matter how much you lock your credit card files, set up two-factor authentication, or use strong passwords, or steer clear of phishing attempts, the likelihood of someone stealing your identity again remains frighteningly high. This victimization is compared to a physical illness. It can go into remission, but that doesn't mean that it's gone away. Still, I find myself wondering sometimes about the woman who used my card at Psycho Bunny. She's the closest thing I've got to an actual person to pin this on. Was she also the one who hacked my phone? And if so, why did she do it? For money? For fun? On the behest of someone else? Was this a solo operation or part of the growing wave of organized crime like the postal workers busted in New York that is using SIM swaps and credit cards to rake in millions of dollars a year? I'll never know. The only evidence of her role in stealing my identity is a blurry image, her features obscured by a hat and a face mask on Psycho Bunny's security footage, and a voice on Chase's recording system that sounds like me. 
wow, it just highlights that there is more reason now than ever to keep track of your accounts, check your credit cards, check your bank statements, and always make sure that you're verifying those on a daily basis if you can, and then set up fraud alerts on your accounts so that you get notified if charges go through that seem suspicious. It's really, really important. It may seem like a pain in the butt, but it's very essential nowadays. In any case, we're going to go ahead and wrap the episode up for the day. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at the bfdpodcast at gmail.com. We do occasionally post pictures on Instagram as well. We're at the bfdpodcast. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe. Keep it real. And always live your very best life. Bye.